0: Hello,
1: this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of The End of History. I'm Alex Hockily in Sao Paulo, Brazil. You may know that we at BungaCast run a monthly reading club for patrons. This allows us, and our loyal listeners, to explore crucial themes related to the politics of our time in more depth. Toward the end of last year, we explored the idea of techno-feudalism, across a range of readings. The idea behind this techno or neo-feudal thesis is that gaping inequality and the undoing of the working and middle classes is moving us towards something that isn't even capitalism anymore. New property relations are supposedly emerging, with technology playing a central role in domination. The start of this year has seen artificial intelligence enter public discussion like never before driven in part by the release of multiple iterations of ChatGPT. So we thought we would take the opportunity to release a Reading Club episode from late last year, specifically on artificial intelligence, and release it to everyone. So in this episode that you're about to hear, we discuss the recent book, Human Power, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Capitalism. Just to let you know, this year's Reading Club focuses on the themes of freedom, legitimacy, and globalization we're going through works by Martin Heglund, Jürgen Habermas, and Giovanni Arrighi. If you'd like to join us on our explorations, and tool up with the knowledge to understand the political, economic, and social crises ongoing today, please do sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast for $10 a month. In doing so, you'll also get access to at least two more exclusive episodes a month, Which include unique analysis from us, extended interviews with some of the sharpest guests around, and plenty more. So, we do hope to see you there, and we hope we'll be seeing much more of each other. For now, though, here's episode 306 on AI Capitalism. Hello, dearest patrons, welcome back to another BungaCast reading club, the penultimate reading club of the 2022 series. Uh, This is the second one on neo-feudalism or techno-feudalism with an emphasis on the techno. So I'll hand over to George.
2: So as um, you know, as you said already, Alex, continuing the discussion of techno-feudalism and following on from last month's reading club which was Joel Copkins, the coming of neo feudalism a warning to the global middle class um and actually i also mentioned this in the questions we we had a discussion on some of these issues on episode 305 a free episode available to all um techno feudal unreason where we discussed evgeny morozov's essay in the new left review on feudalism so last month we talked about yeah obviously feudalism um class structure ideology Geography, when we discussed Kotkin, we talked about exploitation, expropriation, accumulation, primitive and otherwise. I don't know what the opposite of primitive accumulation is. Is it like standard or standard accumulation or just accumulation, normal accumulation? I don't know. We didn't, we didn't discuss that. Just, just accumulation. accumulation. As in justice. So like, I
0: mean, that's well, kind of it, true, Well, I right? guess that
1: is the point. It is just accumulation because it's all done by the rules
2: rather than yeah. through violence.
0: Oh my God, you nerds. Stop. <laughs>
2: Fair exchange is no robbery, um, as they say. So if you want to understand that that comment in its context, go back to uh, last month if you haven't listened to it. Um, but looking to the future uh, or to the present, not the past, uh, this month we're moving part two or three on techno- techno-feudalism. With, um, and I will probably mispronounce at least one of these people's names. I apologize in advance. Uh, Nick Dyer with Withford, Atla Mikola Kojson I don't know K J O S E N uh, and James Steinhoff's *Inhuman Power: Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Capitalism*, which was published by Pluto in 2019. <clears throat> so this was recommended by a listener at the start of the year as something that we should engage with because we were looking at we wanted to look specifically at the role of technology within the techno-futist um, thesis and these discussions. Um and so yeah, hopefully today cover some things around the future of work, artificial intelligence and more widely the role of technology in the future of capitalism. So just to kind of give this a um <clears throat> a, a a present a, a twist on the the present day um or for the present day, it was announced today that San Francisco may allow the police to deploy robots that kill people, so we're we're getting to the um that kind of Skynet <clears throat> um Terminator situation or maybe this is more robocop but we're definitely getting um you know it's, it's becoming real now if you go to, if if you live in san francisco at least um you could have a um police robot that is able to deploy lethal uh force so what, what do you guys make of, of of this uh is this um a great step forward in the political community's ability to um uh implement the rules that it's that have been chosen by all or is it um, a little bit more dystopian? Uh,
1: I mean, that? here's here's one where I'm sympathetic to the defund the police types. Um, I think actually, you know, here, uh, as we'll come on to discuss, a lot of the question of AI revolves around how imminent you think it is, how possible uh, you, you think a lot of the deployment of more sophisticated AI, AI is, and secondly, whether you think it's good or bad. And here's one case where I think it's probably relatively soon and very bad. And the reason for that, in part is because it doesn't uh, rely on um, turning a profit effectively, right? So you have um, elements, arms of the security state, whether it's at the kind of federal level or state level or wherever else, um, able to basically, you know, pay for robots, right? Killer robots. Now that doesn't, I don't know the degree to which artificial intelligence is actually involved in those, but in any case, it seems like the, 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 bit about AI and robotics, which is the scariest and the the kind of the, the element which will be implemented soonest, at least amongst the, the kind of scary parts of it. Right. And I like yeah it, it, it does where, it does frighten me.
0: So where I demure from what Alex said is the I think the the defund the police argument actually leans into the AI killer robot argument right in the sense that obviously um the two things kind of dovetail they intersect um because obviously you know the idea is oh we have this um kind of problematic police force that refuses to implement the gender sensitivity and racial awareness training that we send them to and therefore it'll be much easier if we can just kind of program you know robots to do this um and so i think there is like um the arguments for deferring to AI, You know, um, I think those kinds of arguments will dovetail very well with the um, critiques, some of which are in this in the book, in fact, about the, you know, kind of the inevitably gendered and racialized and minoritized um, patriarchal structures of global capitalism, whatever, whatever have you, that those will in fact be arguments for strengthening the killer robot dynamic. And AI comes into it in the sense as to how far you can rely on these um on these machines to act autonomously of human operators, right? So that is where the element of AI comes into the killer robot question. And it's something which is, um, you know, kind of being debated and developed um, even as we speak.
2: Yeah. No, I just wanted to to, to throw that in there, to, to make it live and to make it um, relevant, because this actually was was um, announced today. But I guess for the, for the time being, at least, um, there's no plans to introduce um, robot podcasters. I mean, m- you might argue would you notice but uh, that would be stay... an
0: abomination and should be resisted yeah. by all communists and socialists everywhere it that should be a be major more. part of socialist strategy to make sure that robot podcasting is strongly fucking resisted and i hope yeah, yeah, our though, listeners shout, will agree with this
1: shout, shout out to a friend of the podcast whose uh whose podcast is called a fully automated podcast so you know he <laughs> starting a trend but, but there.
2: then but he's not actually a robot himself, as, far as, um, no. as far as he isn't. He isn't. No, he's giving ideological.
1: He's giving ideological sustenance to to that idea. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. Just to, just to kick things off, then I guess on on this book, um, which is is quite, as I, you know, said wide ranging, engages a lot of the Marxist um, theory. But I think that you know the very first thing that they start with is that contemporary capitalism is is possessed by this ai artificial intelligence question um why is this the case why is it that this seems to be one of the very few areas um where capitalists still seem to have some sort of ambition for technological progress for for thinking of the future um for development
1: i mean i guess it's because it gets down to the very nucleus of what capitalism is and its internal uh its internal competitive engine which is cutting costs and I think it touches both on a question of um, just purely accumulation as well as the more, I guess, political question of, of um, legitimation, if we want to put it that way, which is basically to say that it allows you, you know, getting rid of human laborers, get it might be you know, kind of profitable for you, but it also um, is politically useful in terms of getting rid of a pesky element. So I think it gets very down to the to the to the nub of it, whereas for Western capital, especially highly financialized Western capital, building out railways or whatever um, isn't particularly um, appealing because it it doesn't Im- it doesn't um, it would need someone to act in the interest of capital in general to say, actually, let's build out whole new forms of infrastructure or housing or whatever, um which might lead to further growth. But that's not in the interest of the leading fractions of capital, whereas something like uh,
2: AI is. Yeah, I guess it's one one thing where where there's a question: is there a dialectic whereby if you were to remove too much labor, if you were to automate too much of it and replace it with with AI of various sorts, and we'll get into the differences between AI, ro- robotics, and various other sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, does does this actually strengthen oppositional forces to the extent that? you know you then have a lot of people who are um displeased that their labor has been has been replaced in in this way but i mean i think the you know the, the authors of the book at least characterize capitalism today as in their their words actually existing ai capitalism so they're clearly staking a position on all of this their their idea being that there's you know the phase we're in today is one of experimental and uneven adoption of ai technologies a lot of the analysis a lot of discussion is you know looking into the future and as you said before alex there's a question of how it's one of the questions but i guess uh you you kind of approach pretty quickly is how soon in the future are we really talking about here is this just around the corner or is it around a corner that's slightly um further away as it were so i guess just before we kind of get into some of the more substantive questions there is a few terms and definitions and ground clearing and all that sort of thing that needs to be done. Um, And the, so the authors of the book, and I will continue to say authors of the book rather than uh, mispronounce all their names again. Um, So they give a definition of AI that expands on a pithy one that they note, which is the study of how to make computers do things at which at the moment people are better, which is, you know, short, short one that you can take away listener, but the longer definition they give is as follows. The essence of AI, indeed the essence of intelligence, is the ability to make appropriate generalizations in a timely fashion based on limited data. The broader the domain of application, the quicker conclusions are drawn with minimal information, the more intelligent the behavior. They then distinguish between three different <clears throat> basic sorts of um, AI. So the the first one being artificial intelligence or what they call narrow AI, and that's got three different parts don't worry this is it sounds like a list but I'll, I'll hopefully um kind of come back to this one and explain what those three are but you've got narrow ai artificial general intelligence and artificial super intelligence so artificial um <clears throat> uh general intelligence or agi artificial super asi those are um pretty particularly if you read the book pretty self-explanatory but what are the different sorts of narrow ai they have the good old-fashioned ai machine learning and something which they call situated, embodied, dynamical framework. So the way that they lay this out is that good old-fashioned AI, this is the oldest um, kind of uh, approach to AI, which you know is um, aims to kind of, I guess, replace some sorts of um, uh, in- inferences or some sort of logical reasoning that the human beings display. Machine learning, this is something which I think is probably um, pretty sort of familiar to to all of us it's this um i guess the, in the age of big data it's essentially machines running these really um large scale repeated calculations and looking for correlations of various sorts and then starting to infer from this on on new data sets so that's a um, another sort of that narrow ai and then sed um situational uh, situated embodied and embodied and dynamic framework um and this is a kind of new AI, which is uh, a bit more, I think, in in their account, at least the the, the edges are a bit fuzzier. It's qualitatively different to this good old fashioned AI, this kind of narrow one. And it sort of starts to um, um, bring in some more complex kind of qualitative kind of fuzzier um, calculations rather than that kind of narrow um, logical reasoning or inferences from big sets of data. So hopefully not too much of a blizzard of terms and letters are there um but i thought it was, it was would be useful to go through this a little bit for listeners is there anything that i've missed there before we crack on with some of the bigger questions
0: uh nothing specific but i would um i just kind of i would say i think i think it opens up really well I mean, there's some I've got issues uh, with the kind of overall argument we'll come to in the course of the discussion. But I did just want to say how much um, how impressed I was with um, how effectively they summarize some of these tropes and they make digestible some otherwise kind of, you know, you hear lots about AI kind of uh, in the business press. Um, and, you know, more kind of mediocre renditions in other media. And so I thought it was a very, you know, from the political and social scientific viewpoint, I thought it was a very effective summary of the different outlooks and trends. Um, And all of that was really impressive. The only thing I'd say which um, would, you know, kind of by way of opening up our discussion, I suppose, which they don't mention, and hopefully without preempting it, is um, how much the whole era is, founded on the, or exists in the context of cheap money. Um, And they open up with the tale of kind of a, one of these kind of heroic Silicon Valley entrepreneurs um, desperately looking for funding for his venture capital project in AI. Um, And that, you know, this book is a couple of years old now. And so it's only now that the era of cheap money is kind of receding into the past, that it becomes more visible. Um, But, you know, that's, I think a question is how far AI is an artifact of, um, The era of cheap money, at least as far as we know AI at the moment, and I thought some of the lines they have are brilliant. Like this point about um, how common it is now that AI plus UBI has become the formula for techno-progressive, social-democratic thought. They have some, you know, some genuinely barbed Mm -hmm. and effective insights. I thought, and that AI plus UBI is true. Like it genuinely is kind of um, very dominant among a certain strain of kind of left progressivism as um a solution to so many of our problems and
1: not just not just left progressivism i think that's an important point no
0: indeed and i mean they you know they do talk about kind of the um you know the uh, how abi ubi sorry how ubi kind of breaks down politically and how it's um you know how enamored certain strains of some of the creepier kind of more oligarchic libertarian right how enamored they are of ubi as well
2: yeah, it's the new kind of um, electric electrification and Soviets kind of um, um, vibe. But just on this um, cheap money point, is is your contention then that this, um, this is going to kind of look quite dated, is, this is going to be another future that's been, you know, been taken from us that we had at least this, this dream for a short period of time of of AI due to cheap money. And now there's no more cheap money. There's no more dreams or nightmares of AI.
0: No, so I wouldn't go that far. I think, I mean, AI will continue to, um, you know, I think they will continue to make progress in AI and to embed it in the functioning of various kind of aspects of the economy. But I, I, without being able to predict any concrete outcome... I suspect there will be an effect. It might take the kind of the shine off it for the moment, um, but I it might kind of put AI, make it less prominent. I mean, you know, you think like at the moment, everyone's kind of fixated with blockchain stuff as a result of the collapse of FTX rather than AI, right? So I think it might just kind of make it less prominent as uh, cheap money recedes, there'll be less kind of money sloshing around yeah. for crazy venture capital startups, but that doesn't mean it'll go away. I think it'll be there kind of, you know, they'll be working assiduously in the background to continue to embed it in the way in which financial markets work, to continue to kind of use it as part of um the rollout of the you know the bio state, access Google wants access to NHS medical data, this kind of thing. So I think that kind of stuff will continue. But the um perhaps the more kind of utopian slash dystopian visions. Um, the froth will become less prominent as there's less money in sloshing around in Silicon Valley.
2: Yeah, no, we'll, we'll put Alex, anything on this? So just, um, I did actually say earlier that I would say what a robot was as well, which I, I neglected to do. But um, yeah, the I think this is the standard definition is that it's an artificial device that firstly, it can sense its environment and act on that environment secondly that it's embodied so that intelligence has a has a kind of um uh a, a container which you might say ai or agi or asi like there's a question as to whether these have to be embodied and thirdly um it can autonomously i.e., without human direction carry out useful work so it's got sense it's got a body and it can do some work so that's a that's a robot uh for you I'm not sure how useful that will um will will be for your for your weekend listener but um good good to know perhaps okay so ai and you know the, the political aspects of of this so the, the approach of the book is definitely and they you know um lay this out in very much in the marxist tradition and they draw on a lot of marks um and so the sort of starting point that they have i think theoretically is that under capitalism and this is a you know uh, uh, an, an old an old idea things assume the appearance of human powers while people are treated as things so ai in their opinion is the concrete manifestation of this it's this this embodiment of the abstraction um by which things assume human powers um and so they follow this by sort of and i think this is an important thing that they draw out throughout the, the whole book they see ai as embodying the contradictory potential of capitalism so on the one hand Uh, free humanity from the exploitation of labor um, for the purposes of of capital accumulation but on the other hand potentially offers capital freedom um, to freedom from humanity that is as a biological barrier um, to accumulation so what do we make of this this idea that AI could sit you know I think it's often thought AI can liberate um, humanity from the demands of labor, but what do you guys, what did you guys make of this? The possibility that they raise that AI could liberate capital from labor.
0: That's always been the dream. I mean, I think, yeah, it's what's the strength I think of the book is that they very firmly see all the discussion and um, use of AI very much in the, that kind of trajectory, that it's not something to do with a transformation in computing power or, um, you know, the, use of neural networks or whatever but given a certain context of social relations it is in fact just a reiteration of the of the very nature of capital right as um as an automated process that seeks to dispense um that seeks to dispense with human labor but can never do so. Um, and so that's I think they they maybe you know the the glass is perhaps missing. Um, in this because I think what they or the element that they might miss is that the to a certain degree the fact that capital can't dispense with that it requires human labor to valorize itself um, is a critique of capital right that it keeps on recreating um, exploitative labor conditions despite the way in which it pushes technology forward and they develop this kind of um, you know, in the book by talking about how there will always be the um, you know, the extension of crude and primitive forms of labor in tandem with the development of um super technological kind of breakthroughs. And so I thought it was very effective. Um, you know, the the dis but the in a way the dystopian idea of um the Skynet kind of dystopian vision is it's that kind of fantasy of capital of which is fully release from any integration or um, dependence on human labor, but that it can't actually do that. You know, and that's part of Marx's critique, that capital requires human labor in order to exist by definition. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's worth stressing because it also, if Marx is right, then it's also a check You know, kind of it um, indicates that there's a barrier to some of the more far flung utopian and dystopian imagination of what AI could become or do.
2: Yeah, I think it um it's it's interesting to to counterpose the kind of Skynet dystopia or the the Matrix dystopia to the sort of monsters or fears that you know people in the 19th century had, and Marx obviously, or not obviously but famously says that capital is like a vampire and this you know vampires kind of need humans right they need them continually like is the vampire's dream to get rid of all the humans no the humans are the um are the food of the vampire but also it's a bit more complex and and they're a bit more intertwined than that if you know in many different ways but there's a clearly at least that kind of fantasy or that fear still recognizes that objective constraint sorry alex i think you were well, no i mean it
1: just this this reading um this section of the book did remind me of the argument advanced by Andreas Malm about this capitalism switch to steam power away from water power that um, in early industrialization, I mean, kind of seventeenth, early eighteenth century, uh, in Britain, that um, you know, plants in factories had to be based close to water, right, to 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 make use of the mill, and they had to then depend on other capitalists to share uh, share that out, to be dependent on place, and you know, you had to site your factory in a specific place next to near water where villages were and so on. And that, um, you know, the switch to coal and therefore steam power uh, was also was a way of kind of emancipation, capitalism, emancipating capital, excuse me, for capital to emancipate itself from from kind of people and place. So there's there's a if you follow that logic through and if you if you take that theory as to be true, um, there is a, a kind of longstanding attempt by capital to emancipate itself from from humanity to a certain extent, um, which I, which I found, I found kind of compelling in, in their, um, in the kind of thrust of the argument presented in the book to say that AI and capitalism are somehow um, AI is the. Um, you know the kind of realization of capitalism somehow there's a there's this telos towards artificial intelligence right from the beginning i think they cite either mackenzie wark or actually nick land in, in saying something like this that there's a, a teleological identity between artificial intelligence and capital
2: yeah yes yeah, i think it is nick land i mean it's a um uh, yeah I th- well we, we can come back to, to to discuss this and i think whether it's um whether it's compatible with with the way marx understood capitalism but obviously that's a secondary question as to whether it's right or not anyway but for listeners who haven't um read the book i wanted you know apologies but i wanted to lay out some of the i guess central claims and some of the what they see the political stakes in this discussion as um because i think we've you know got some of the the concepts in place now so the one of the central claims that they that they make is as follows At the end of the second decade, well, now the beginning of the third, so end of the second decade of the 21st century, AI development is dominated by capital, led by some of the world's most powerful oligopolistic corporations, enabled by an assisting nation states seeking instruments of economic competition in the world market and weapons for their military and security forces, ML machine learning, advanced robotic predictive analytics, and other fourth industrial revolution technologies, are strengthening capital vis-a-vis labor and elite sections of labor relative to others, and so are hence likely to increase inequality along lines of class stratification that are also lines of gender and race. So what they see, or one of the things that they take aim at the authors of this book, is that expectation that Widespread AI adoption would automatically lead to the end of capitalism. They see this as misplaced. And instead, as we've already touched on, they see that it could open the way to a capitalism that continues without humans. So it's a much it's much more open. It's not a, um, a straightforward, you know, tech will save us position. And specifically, they see two left perspectives, which they try to critique in here, uh, in this book, um, on the impact of AI on capitalism, which they term minimalist and maximalist so the minimalist one this is the idea this isn't happening um i basically predictions of increasing ai powers and widespread adoption are hugely exaggerated and they're basically investment attracting hype and worker intimidating bluster and they say that people who tend to take this minimalist position um can point to like past predictions of jobless futures which haven't come to um, come to pass and basically this conclusion of this minimalist position um is that there are no real immediate major implications of AI for socialist or communist struggles. Basically, it doesn't matter. The maximalist position, unsurprisingly, takes the opposite um, view and says, you know, this is really happening. Um, so let's speed it up. And this is, you know, to listeners will, will recognize um, this, I hope in some of the previous discussions we've had. Um, and it's basically this kind of left accelerationist or post-capitalist view of AI. So fully automated luxury communism, uh, z- xenofeminism, etc. The idea here is for this maximalist position is that you kind of have a transition to socialism by reducing or eliminating the need to work and supplying a, uni- base, a universal basic income. So did you find this distinction useful, guys? I mean, is this kind of a, is it too crude or is it actually a good way to to kind of um, divide left approaches to, to AI? They're maximalist. They think this is really happening. Let's speed it up. They're minimalist. They think this this isn't really happening. There's not nothing really nothing to see here. Um move on.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of did provoke me a little bit because I I was a young accelerationist. And I think there was a, certainly a, a certain intellectual moment in the early 2010s. Um around and You should write that up. They it would make
0: a great kind of pod <laughs> podcast uh, yeah. podcast like um <laughs> piece you know i used to be a young accelerationist yeah or um reflections slowed... of a young accelerationist yeah, exactly. I, slowed yeah. Down. Yeah. I slowed down <laughs> in my old age. no
1: exactly <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I, but I, I do think there was a certain intellectual moment and they refer to you know, people like Aaron Bastani and uh, Cernicek and Williams and so on. And I, I mean, I remember reading those books and having those discussions and finding that appealing because it was something that sought to break with what Cernicek and Williams call folk politics. But the kind of um, effectively uh, the abandonment of any kind of Promethean politics by the left and that this sought to present an optimistic uh pro-technology, pro-growth vision um, of the future. And, it, you know, I think that's kind of died off in, in part because I what um, propelled that sort of politics was a frustration with this kind of um, impasse and deadening kind of vibe of that period still where you didn't have yet the turbulence that you have today. Um, whereas, you know, in, in today's context, the kind of the politics comes to you. So you don't need to kind of conjure it up through... Uh, kind of uh, hyperactive technological imagination. Um, and uh, I I actually, what, what provoked me about their definition was precisely that today I would default, I think, to that minimalist position. Like ah, AI is a long way off. Um, you know, we don't need to be worried. All these claims about technological unemployment are... Probably overstated and at any rate not that uh, not happening that soon. Um, and then and I and I would generally subscribe to the Darren position where he argues that it's basically capitalist stagnation, which is driving the creation of large surplus populations more than technological mm-hmm. unemployment per se. But you know, this so provoked, uh... this did provoke me to think a little bit more deeply about do I want to be into that do that want to be in that minimalist camp? I don't know.
0: So, the, it's, you know, I mean, we've chatted a bit about this before, I suppose it's worth revisiting in response to your question, George, but the, you know, the peak of that kind of um, luxury communism phase that seemed to me to peak and crash, it was the frothy, it was the frothy kind of, um, well, or the froth of the peak wave of Corbynism, it seems to me, and left populism. And then it kind of crashes, um, you know, in the with the defeat of all of that in two thousand nineteen.
1: No, I think and it, it predates it. It's, it, it, it. predates it significantly. I didn't say I, pre, I,
0: didn't, say, I didn't say that it uh, that it started then. I said that it peaked, right? So it crashes No, no, no I think like it peaked wave.
1: before then. I th- I think it it turns it becomes um, you know much more focused on kind of traditional social democratic demands with Corbynism and left populism, and that a lot of the more you know um kind of futurist stuff um rather predated that Maybe. when there wasn't I mean, any concrete I, I remember to get a it was
0: you know it was very much I mean Aaron Bastani was propelling that argument um between Corbyn's election as leader and the um election of 2019 when corbynism crashed i mean i don't want to you know uh, that was you know that was the what it seemed to me from how it seemed to me from um within british politics what i wanted to say was though beyond that is it's not clear to me how um, precisely where the kind of this brief, um, this brief wave of left Prometheanism, which as Alex says, you know, I was quite kind of uh, taken aback with and quite sympathetic to and surprised by. It's not clear to me where it came from, Um, but it seems to me that it was ultimately quite superficial, right? Because it seems to have largely dissipated and the left has kind of flipped back to um, doom You know, particularly its attachment to eco doom and eco-catastrophe and um, the imminent kind of climate crisis, the emphasis on all the, um, you know, flooding and, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, wildfires and what have you. And so... The Prometheanism, you know, whatever caused it, it seems to me it was quite superficial. And so I read it more as um, it, you know, I can't help or at least read it more as being something which is tied to the fortunes of left populism more than anything autonomous. So once left populism kind of failed, um or wasn't going to kind of crash into power uh the prometheanism faded away and you know it's kind of the left has retreated back to its um kind of gloomy prognoses of ecological collapse and the best that we can hope for is survival mm-hmm. rather than actually implementing a kind of a program of radical social transformation so i think that's um you know that's part of it uh, the problem i think with the framing of minimalist and maximalist though right is that it forces you when it's framed in that way it forces you know kind of any um rational kind of or outside observer to want to kind of find some moderate position in the middle and so i think whenever you frame something in maximalist or minimalist terms it kind of forces everyone into the middle effectively so i wonder if it's better to kind of think about how you know what the presuppositions are that are shared between the maximalists and the minimalists more than kind of looking for the point that you want to adopt on on this kind of you know um artificially constructed spectrum
2: yeah no i think i think there's definitely something to that to that first point that you made Phil that the maybe it's it's dated already to the extent that this book was probably written in like 2017 2018 if it was published in 2019 and so now you have kind of minimalist maximalist that little you know <clears throat> a little less popular than it was before previously and now you have catastrophist is is a bit more um present in any discussion of the left i think the the doom the doom uh ladenness needs to be needs to be remarked on um that at least there was i don't i don't I, you know the term promethean gets thrown around a lot but at least it was optimistic like fully automated luxury communism was a moment of of um you know maybe utopianism but at least there was some uh some kind of underlying <clears throat> kind of uh hope or or good vibes there um let me
0: uh, let me okay. pause it Let me posit uh, what they share, right? So I said, you know, perhaps a different way is to think rather than to find your way on, you know, to identify where you sit on the spectrum between minimum and maximum, you know, uh, I think one thing they do share is a lack of agency, right? So particularly with the fully automated luxury communism, the whole point of that was it's purely technology, right? So the argument was, you know, in the same way that the the early, the kind of proto-Protestants, In medieval Europe, didn't have access to a printing press, and that was why Lollardy failed, where Martin Luther succeeded, was because Martin Luther had a printing press. And they, you know, I remember Aaron Bastani makes the same case. The reason communism couldn't work in the 20th century wasn't because of a political failure. We don't need to, you know, investigate. All the kind of dredge up, all the kind of um, dig through the ruins of Trotskyism and Maoism and Stalinism and all that, because it was like Lollardy, right? They didn't have the technology. Whereas now, with um, biogenetics, with AI, with um, all these new technological breakthroughs, we're in a position to do what they were incapable of doing. Um, and this, you know, I mean, this wasn't just a kind of a logical fallacy, but the, you know, the um, it figured in the 2019 election. Because the um, and I hear I hope all listeners and particularly George will appreciate what I'm about to do in bringing this conversation around, because in the 2019 election, they promised like awesome. everything. They promised broadband communism for the masses. Right. Enormous public spending and everything else. But they refused to respect the vote of the 2016 referendum. So they deliberately eschewed agency. And to that degree, I think the fully automated luxury communism and the more modest kind of program that was offered in the 2019 labor platform were of a piece, right? In that they simply entirely issued questions of agency. And I think the minimalists do that too, right? Or in as much as they kind of dismiss, um, you know, they dismiss AI, they're still kind of stuck with the problem that there is no um, political way to break through the impasse, so maybe I you know, I'd suggest or hazard that maybe what the minimalists and the maximists share is probably a similar skepticism towards agency, political agency. I mean,
2: I'm 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 always willing, <laughs> if I'm chairing or hosting it, to allow the discussion to come back to, to Brexit. That's absolutely fine by me. But I don't think revisit that's the trauma quite. always, you know,
1: that's <laughs> that's a problem. You need to, you need to I I overcome mean, that.
2: Well, I don't think it is quite so plausible what you were saying, um, with respect to minimalism, um, as as with respect to maximalism. Because yeah. maximalism is like is like, yeah, this is this is happening, let's speed it up. We we, you know, this is a kind of we don't need to do anything other than just speed up things, which are already happening. Well, no, it, we don't need to do like... anything,
1: but we will, we, the, 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 doing will come in the future, right? So we're going to yeah. accelerate, force the contradictions, and then we will have all this stuff to take over in the process of revolution and, and then communism. Um, so it, it kind of, to a to certain extent, it does postpone agency, if not kind of writes it out entirely, um, but sorry, carry on. Cause I, I do agree with what you're getting. At. Yeah.
2: But then, but then with the minimalist, it's like, this doesn't solve, like this doesn't, If the if the fundamental minimalist like uh, gambit is this doesn't really change anything, like fundamentally the political stakes aren't 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 qualitatively altered. It's still the same. You know that's that old kind of Engels idea that we've got the technology for communism already. It's a political problem. I think to the extent that that it's phased it's posed, and this might be a specific sort of of um gamenista minimalism which you know that's that's fine if that's what it is but like yeah the the minimalist position is this is secondary or the or not even the secondary just that the political is one thing and the technological is another
1: that that's absolutely right george it it is basically the game remains the same and i think what what is shown what What sheds light on that um, point um, and what what brings it into contrast is the author's own attempt to um, not just do a Marxist critique of AI, but to do an AI critique of Marxism. And their AI critique of Marxism precisely suggests that there is a qualitative change with... Um, not with AI as it currently exists, but as it might come to exist, and that that does change the game. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily write out agency, political agency, from the story. And um, we can come on to discuss whether they do or don't. But the issue there is more just that the the the, co- the political coordinates become radically not even political coordinates, but the social coordinates become altered by um, kind of mm. mass uptake of artificial intelligence. Um, and, and so that's what the minute, the middle, the minimalist position recoils from that and says, no, it doesn't change anything. What, you know, the basic, what was argued in capital remains the same, you know, 150 years
2: on. Um, yeah, sorry. It just, just made me think as, you know, just, as you were discussing that, that in some ways, one of the central questions of this AI, like of this book of AI or that's maybe not that we would say is missing is that question of agency and this is this is when we were discussing conspiracy theory i think timothy Melli's book that came out really clearly that they're they're so i don't want to you know push it too far and say that they're the same but there must then there are some similarities um between like the ai sort of vision of the future and what that says about agency and the current problems with it and um conspiracy theorizing as well but we can go actually can, can I let me out. just add something onto yeah.
1: that now because I do think there is some there is I guess an agency panic to take up the Meli um argument with regard to the fears of AI right that we're going to be that we're going to be completely written out of the story of of history and I was going to say human history but it's precisely not it's of, of inhuman history of um probably not even history anymore but of just of the future um and I think that that is something that's quite real but also you know to the extent that that might be a real possibility i think we magnified in our fears of it because it that is more a reflection of our lack of political agency more than it is of the fact that we're going to be all made completely redundant useless populations and so on
2: yeah no i think that's that's yeah nicely put it, it, it's always the case isn't it right the, the fears of the projections of the, the problems at the at the moment you know you doesn't tell you about the future it tells you about the present always these kind of um uh, approaches but anyway there's there's quite a few more things to to discuss um one of which is and we won't go into it in too much detail here but they do touch on the reconfiguration debate um and one of the questions which comes out of this um is basically and this is you know crude summary is whether the more developed technology becomes the easier it will be to produce communism so we previously discussed um some issues around this when we discussed jasper burns work as well as wolfgang strake's piece in the new left review engels's second theory technology warfare and the growth of the state and strake takes quite a i guess a pessimistic view on this so he's he you know partly through reading of engels he comes to this conclusion that essentially technology in recent decades, has disproportionately advanced in the fields of information management, useful for surveillance, and in warfare control of populations. So I guess the question here is, does the development of technology make communism easier or more difficult to produce, or does it depend? I guess we kind of touched on some of these questions already, but just to, to put a finer point on it.
0: I thought this part of the discussion was, you know, it was actually... How should I say? I mean, it was uh genuinely kind of honest and open, I thought. Um, and I thought, you know, the points, I mean, this was it, I'm not familiar with the discussion outside of um, you know, the way they've rendered it about the fact that um to some degree, you know, I accept the idea made by one side in the debate that the technology of capitalism that any kind of future society would inherit would inevitably be stamped by capitalism. So it's not just kind of, you know neutral machinery where you just change the person who's pulling the levers and pushing the buttons, but that it is itself kind of a whole, um, you know, it's structured in all sorts of ways that reflect the society in which it emerged. So it's not neutral. I accept that. On the other hand, you know, it seems to me that there's also, you know, the idea that this necessitates some kind of fragmented insurrectionary kind of, um, I don't know, anarcho-syndicalist response also seems to me to be misplaced. And to that extent, the debate, at least as it's rendered by the authors here, seems to me to be, again, kind of missing the sense of um, it's ultimately a political question, not a technological one. You know, and I don't know that it's so important how far technology will shape these kinds of issues because the most prominent and important questions are those of, um, you know, politics, which is to say state power, um, who runs, you know, who isn't, who's in charge and how do they rule and in what ways are they accountable? Um, those basic questions of politics seem to me to be more important rather than, you know, the um, how far uh, technological structure would imprint a future social hypothetical kind of socialist society.
1: I mean, I don't, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but isn't that to a little bit evasive, Phil? Because, in, in, you know, to take the example of The debate that is set up in the book between Jasper Burns on one hand and um, uh, sorry, remind me of who, who was kind of on the other side of that. Debate uh, Alberto Toscano um, about you know to what extent you can just seize the seize the tools or or they need to be reconfigured and or whether their ability to be reconfigured and Jasper Burns proposes this much more you know romantic image that it all has to be kind of local we need to set up local councils and not try to seize the kind of big AI global infrastructure, um, so. Uh, I, you know, that is the political question. It obviously is something that is tightly interlinked with technology and how it's understood, but that is the political debate, right? So I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an evasion. And I think for you to say, oh, it's it, the, let's remember the political question. No, that, that kind of mischaracterizes what is, what is at stake and what's going on there. I don't have a particular position on it. My, my, I wouldn't lean more towards the reconfiguration Possibility that the the tools can be seized. Not all of them, because a lot of them are, you know, like a like a hammer that Sylvester the cat in a Looney Tunes cartoon uses to bash the mouse over the head. You know, what what good is this massive mallet to to this mouse? Um, if he takes it over, its whole purpose is to bash the mouse over the head. So there's certain, you know, obviously surveillance technologies and various other forms of social control, which are, or or even you know, the kind of um, some of the logistics networks, which um. Are only make sense premised on the kind of production of commodities. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's complicated basically, but I, I do I'm think that, sure. that debate there is is a political one.
0: I'm not sure, you know, like the surveillance, you know, a lot of that is, um, you know, a lot of that. I think you know you could make a, a good good case for it that it's very effective. A lot of it is very effective technology. For helping you identify more quickly and efficiently what you want. You know, so when Amazon or Google kind of tracks um, you know, the websites I visit, the purchases that I make and what have you, um, and it collects that data and it can use it to refine what is made available to me, you know, that sounds you know, that sounds to me like it's effective may- effective, what makes it creepy is the fact that I have no control over it or very limited and remote and heavily mediated control over it. Whereas, you know, if there, if I lived in a society that was um, uh, organized with more worker power and I had, you know, equally kind of more control, direct control over conditions of the conditions of my labor and everybody else's, then, you know, that technology would be less creepy by default.
1: Mm, but aren't you being, uh, you know, kind of an syndicalist yourself? Because, I mean, what you're proposing there is a economic democracy within consumer capitalism right and the whole the whole no, point think, of it I mean, is that the, no, I, the amazon no, no. amazon recommendation systems is all about getting you to buy more stuff and there too would be without buying into any sort of degrowth notions or anti-consumerism or whatever there would be a reconfiguration of what you know, of desire effectively that wouldn't be turned towards necessarily you know consumer goods right
0: sure, i think um, i'm not so, i don't think i I'm. I'm not making a syndicalist point. I'm making a point about centralized. You know, you need centralized control um, that integrated everyone effectively. And so, I would. You know, your your consume the consumer would feel, um, you know, less uh, less manipulated because the processes through which um, you know, assassinated in their own kind of environment. Um, place of work and having greater political control, they would feel less, um, you know, that they were not menaced by these hostile remote corporations. And that's not an anarcho-syndicalist thing, because I'm not saying about how people working for Google would feel, but how consumers who used, you know, the surveillance algorithms would feel less um, skeptical and wary in, you know, ideally speaking, at least.
1: I I get you. But just to clarify, I don't want to go too much on this road, but just to clarify what I meant is that, you know, that presupposes a world still of uh, Amazon and Google and whatever competing against one another. It's just that they are worker owned and controlled and there's some central coordination, but that they're still producing the same commodities and they're still driven Uh, towards commodity production. I think that...
0: All right. I mean, I take... I take your point, you know, there's presuppositions built into the position I articulated, Um, you know, I accept that. And I guess that's a whole other, you know, much more complicated debate about um, what the nature of a transitional society would look like.
2: Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's more than uh, Amazon plus worker power. But to move on to one of the things that I found a little more difficult in the book, perhaps, um, was the focus that they have on, they talk about AI capital and at many points in the book, just capital um, rather than capitalists. So this, you know, not completely um, um, never before seen approach that some Marxist theory does have, which is, you know, focusing on on the role, the historic kind of agency of capital um, rather than capitalists. So they, when they talk about AGI, so artificial general intelligence, they conclude that capital is already an automatic subject, but with AGI, it would also become autonomous from labor, from the labour of humans and therefore humanity. Capitalism could continue, but with, an, with inhuman general intelligence representing both sides of the struggle between capital and labour, one side accumulating wealth, while the other continues to work for a wage, whatever form it may take, in machinic misery. So I guess my sort of unease with this is that it does seem to impute capital um, as a kind of set of tools, if you will, um, agency, and maybe even consciousness. Or maybe that's taking it too far and being unfair. But it does seem to do this, like prior to um, AI, which is conscious. I mean, am I reading too much into this? And are they have they got it wrong about how class and technology? Yeah, I'm. the line about
0: it being an automatic subject. I mean, that is, you know, that's simply taken directly from Marx's account of capital. Um, in volume one. So, I mean, that, I think, you know, that in as much as Marx is um, correct in that, you know, they're not, they're not adding anything to that. Um, I think when they go with the AGI, the AGI idea is something which would go beyond it and it would become autonomous from the labor of humans. You know, that is the kind of the dystopian fantasy. Um, And that if that did happen, uh, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't actually meaningfully be capital at all. It wouldn't mean meaningfully capitalism because the whole point of Marx's analysis is the interdependence of wage labor and capital, variable capital and, um, constant capital, capital. shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought you had
1: cut out for a second. I was like, I'm not going gonna... to yeah. as well. In, my, yeah. my, brain,
0: my brain cut out. My brain cut out for a second. Um, yeah. So you don't get that with artificial capital.
1: intelligence. It's, it's right there. The whole library of human not. knowledge is there at its fingertips. Yeah. Uh, metaphorically. Indeed.
0: Anyway. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, I mean, I don't, you know, I think there is, you know, they kind of give, um, they, uh, you know, they let loose the kind of the dystopian idea there. Missing the point that if that were to take place, it wouldn't be—you know—it's not really capital. Um, can I, can and again, I, a I, mean, suggestion I think this here. is part I... of Marx's critical, critical dimension of, of uh, or critical critique of capital is the fact that it keeps on recreating the need for the need for labor in this form.
1: I mean, I guess, but to to be very much to the point of this whole you know, section, um, not section of this of, of this episode, but of the whole thing that we're discussing here is, you know, we're discussing effectively some form of post bad post-capitalism, right? That's the, what the techno-feudal argument, techno-feudal thesis is, um, that we were moving beyond capitalism but to something worse. Um, th- that seems a more plausible account, I think, or um, if not plausible account, um, one which is more analytically solid, um to argue that we're moving to this form of post-capitalism where there still is um not capital because capital is this relation which involves humans, but effectively this sort of um yeah this sort of techno- very high tech um world in which humans are kind of increasingly written out of it, written out of its functioning. That I think, at least to me, sounds more plausible than the techno than the technofeudal argument, because I I don't see. I don't see the an imminent return to feudalism. Not that this case here with artificial general intelligence is particularly imminent either, because I it's quite a ways off if at all, right? Um. But I anyway, I wanted to maybe throw this question back to at us. Um. Whether you know whether that you might not call it capitalism, but is that the is that the bad post capitalism that is coming to us?
2: Hmm. Well, there's a Mackenzie Walk book, Capital is Dead, um, but Capital was always dead, it's dead dead Labour. But, you know, is there something worse now? Can you have a kind of a post-capitalist thing from a Marxist perspective that isn't socialism or communism? And I, I guess my, maybe I'm being too crude about it, but that idea that capital is an automatic subject, my understanding is that it's an automatic subject because it is made automatic by the class interests of the capitalists who act in the interests of their of their class not because it sh- it removes the need for capitalists as individual human beings to act right so there is still a human subject there you can't i don't think you can no but in no, it's the other in way the around presentation
0: of capital yeah in the presentation of capital it's very clear that capital is simply the character capitalists are the character mask of capital um, it doesn't it operates through them but they're um it's not as if they have as if it's uh, necessarily dependent on their independent agency
1: yeah, and their mm. interests and their interests aren't foundational. You know, class their class yes, interest is right. a product of competition, um, not the other way around. That you know, they don't have didn't interest. You, but...
0: Didn't you attend? Didn't you attend a Capital Reading Group, George, where you covered this very basic point when you were a PhD student at Nuffield? Did they not teach you this in the Nuffield well, two, course on Capital?
2: Two two things on this. Firstly, I, I you know reserve the right to be a. A heterodox reader and not just kind of uh, narrow-mindedly parroting back what I, I may so have just heard from. Basically others.
0: ignore ignore what the text uh, actually says. Yeah. Okay.
2: I mean just it's be very postmodern, George. Very postmodern. <laughs> and secondly, i've you know it's quite possible that I have just forgotten this. Um but we've had some of these mar- marxological disagreements before where it's been two versus one and then I've I, in my own mind at least been um vindicated and later <laughs> revealed <laughs> again be, very postmodern right. yeah <laughs> that's not postmodern isn't that just kind of solipsism <laughs> yeah um needless to say i had the last laughism um but just to kind of to go a bit more into the political stakes of of this um again you know i might be missing something i might have a um um a very sort of pedestrian or or, or thick-headed uh, reading of the first form of capital, but I found it hard to understand their conclusion. And they, they do say this and so quote, the 20th century de- um, demonstrated the only force that can kill capital is capital itself. The proletariat is sensu stricto, just the gravedigger. Is this right? I mean, this, I think is well, the logical conclusion of this. You know, the more that you inflate AI capital as an independent actor, the more you're de- saying that this is the only thing that can create history right you're you're kind of taking away the agency of all the the class struggle well, dynamic b- of finish off capital, the quote no, finish, off, be, finish off the quote
1: be. because it's important because I, I i don't okay. think it's making it a, a, an
2: abstract point it's a, a historical point so the the quotation continues in 1917 in russia and in 1949 in china revolution arose from intercapitalist war end quote
0: No, so i think i mean it, it's i mean it's the basis it's the very basis of um of the possibility of uh, capital capitalism being uh, overturned is the fact that capital subverts itself. So, you know, to that extent, I think it's entirely accurate. If there, if it wasn't the fact that capital um, annihilated its own conditions, then there'd be no possibility of supplanting it. So I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything, you know, logically speaking, I don't think there's anything wrong with the statement and I think indeed the um you know the examples of uh, of 20th century revolutions as a result of intercapitalist war I think is a good example of um of the logic of the point as well
1: yeah i was getting at that latter point which is just historically that is that it has been capital that has killed itself um in the in the 20th century in those moments um because there hasn't been social revolution
2: i think outside of uh, of those sorts of conditions right but isn't this the whole point, though, that the conditions like the contradictions of capital accumulation lead to the conditions in which the proletariat can exercise agency is not the you know, it doesn't do the job itself. Right. And they they arose from uh, resulted after intercapitalist war, but the intercapitalist war wasn't sufficient. It wasn't. I mean, may, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if, if you guys think that, you know, uh, history is determined well, by whether level. capitalism like self-explodes. Uh, no, or, but it's not, not self. Not ex- it's okay. not.
0: No, no, no. But it's not. It's not making the point about economic. It's not the catastrophist point about economic collapse being the um, being the own. You know the how how capitalism transforms into a different society. It's making a logical point at a higher level of abstraction, which is only that um, the fact that capital undermines its own conditions. Of reproduction is the logical basis on which it can be supplanted. That's not to deny that it requires agency. And indeed that, you know, um, I mean, the very fact, you know, that uh, the labor, the wage labor of the proletariat is incorporated into the functioning, you know, into the circuit and the functioning of capital itself is part of that process. So the two things aren't distinct. It's at a higher level of abstraction, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, unless you hold that Marxism is just a pure theory of will and of subjectivity, and it's we do revolution when we want it enough, which,
2: you know, isn't the case. That's a bit like um, bad football <clears throat> punditry, punditry, punditry. Exactly. Yeah. Who wanted it everything.
1: more? Yeah. The, the proletariat it. wanted it more. And that's why they got revolution in 1917. And, and now they don't want it yeah. enough. You know,
2: the ball was hanging in the area. They just wanted it more. And. Um, well we can i'm sure we can return to this i'm not sure the the two of you convinced me um for what it's worth which might not be all that much um but i think there is a a kind of probably i think this is probably related and so to i guess move on to this kind of maybe final <clears throat> kind of bigger theoretical question um they de- they specifically um in the conclusion um note that their argument isn't a defense of classical humanism human exceptionalism and species sovereignty and instead they conclude that communism too should indeed must be inhuman so this is kind of a, <clears throat> an interesting way to put it um, and so they note that um, ai modes of production have their own af- af- anthropogenesis thus producing different kinds of human and that the human that possibly emerges from the struggle against ai capital will be different from the human that went into it So, you know, this idea that, you know, human nature is no fixed abstraction present in each individual. It's the ensemble of social relations It's produced by a specific sort of society. And they see two, two paths, basically, out of our current situation. The first is a kind of transhuman communism. So this idea that The human in a communist society may reappropriate transhumanism and kind of technologically rework itself and so a nascent communist society could either choose or be forced by ecological collapse perhaps or the aftermath of war this is a quote to radically modify the physical human uh, physical form of the human including its cognitive apparatus metabolic system and body so that's the first first idea, transhuman communism. The other is eco-socialism. So the alternative form of communist inhumanism is ecological. To struggle for human autonomy from capital is also to struggle for recognition of the ecological and human enmeshments and imbrication that capital obscures and obliterates. The other um, kind of possibility is capital dominated, like inhuman capital dominating inhuman labor forever. So two different sorts of inhuman communism. Um, what did the two of you make of this, these inhumanisms?
0: I yeah. know this was the weakest, most kind of the you know, least convincing. And this kind of the way in which it's formulated by, you know, the idea of, oh, my, you know, classical humanism and species sovereignty, oh, my God, you know, God forbid that we have any of that. Human exceptionalism, you know, what a terrible crime. Um, I mean, this is, it's. I suppose it's striking that even, it seems to me, you know, with um. With a very,, um, with a fairly, you know, sure grasp of a sophisticated classical um, Marxist political economy, they still let some of these arguments slip from their hands by indulging this kind of deep green wokery different points so i mean look i mean in in as much as um you know as they concede themselves um and consistent with kind of even classical social theory preceding marx let alone marx himself that um part of the nature of humanity is its own self-transformation through its agency Then, to that degree um you know transhumanism is kind of um you know is kind of an ideological um echo of that and it can be folded into it in which case all of this stuff about Inhumanism and transhumanism becomes redundant because it's folded into a very um you know very uh, basic understanding inherited from enlightenment and post-Enlightenment social theory. Insofar as they try to go beyond it, then it seems to me it's um in fact, you know, uh in re- replicating the very thing that they've criticized. Which is that what they're talking about in this kind of idea that we need a communism, a kind of an inhuman communism, which is integrated, plugged into these, um, you know, superhuman kind of systems that are functioning throughout the cosmos and the planet and the ecosystems and all of this. It is, in fact, that kind of um, bad AI, that kind of dystopian AI vision of a cybernetic future in which humanity is entirely kind of obliterated or its independence and uh, separateness is just kind of bleached out. And you have this, um, homeostatic system that functions independently of humanity mm. and that kind of vision is in fact just you know that is the ai vision so what they think they're dressing up is kind of this um you know inhuman communism as something which is better than the communism of the 20th century is i think just in fact a garbled the garbled expression of the ai capitalism that they're criticizing
1: i'm not sure i read it like that. i mean i i had it more as a sort of techno techno buddhism <laughs> um of of this sort of um yeah you know loss of but isn't of, that of...
0: just a, that's again that's silicon valley ideology right techno buddhism
1: nah I, mean, it's I, I think they're kind th- of aspect i think of... they're different things but anyway i mean I, I i the 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 initial point that you started off with phil i i entirely agree with i think that trans, to the extent that you want to call it this transhuman communism i think is kind of inherent in the communist or certainly a Marxian communist idea from the start. And as you say, kind of potentially even kind of predates that in social, you know, kind of Marxism and social theory. Um, I think that was well put um, that, you know, a new mode of production would uh, itself change humanity and that we might seek to alter ourselves um, by our biological bodies and minds even, um in a conscious, liberatory way in a in a truly free society. I don't have any problem with that. But I did they did also lose me on the kind of ecological points because it didn't seem to it's be saying we're going to use all this technology that we have to um create to to basically have true human mastery. So you know, taking climate change as a as a case where you have an incomplete human mastery where we're able to um, create this whole world and civilization for ourselves, but are unable to deal with the negative feedbacks of that, um, a, you know, true human mastery would be able to live in quote, unquote, harmony with nature. And I put big scare quotes on that, um, it, you know, in, in such a way that we have, um, are better able to control the the kind of natural world and perhaps leave parts wild if we want, and so on. I don't want to get into this whole argument, but would they then go a step beyond that, which seems completely unnecessary and completely um, not necessarily even in keeping or is not a, a logical extension of their earlier argument towards this um you know equality of species and all living and not e- and non-living things which it's like it's again it's this weird buddhist step which just seems to be like a personal preference of mm. the authors rather than anything uh being a without in any way being a logical conclusion to what they've argued in throughout the rest of the book
2: yeah i think there was a bit of a shift of of gears i mean personally i think the, the ideas of trans individuality the idea that under communism you realize the, the essential truth that are like and um, that what makes us human is not is not limited to us and in our own individuality strictly separated from everybody else i think that's a you know that's an idea that i can get behind but it does seem to me that they are that the the, the basic kind of conclusion is that the cost of of communism is our humanity i mean you don't want to put it into like grandiose terms but it does it does seem to be a kind of that's tacked on almost because of yeah, because of these kind of possibly deep green um uh starting points or preferences that that the authors do have and this kind of consequent kind of devaluing of 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 the human. But I mean the I guess to just to kind of wrap it up though and to to get to come back to this idea of um not this kind of uh, you know Will tech save us, or will it doom us? Question. Because I think we've we've covered that quite a bit. But to link it specifically to the to the title or the the subject of this uh, third part of the reading club, um, is this AI vision a support for the techno feudalist thesis, or not, or does it undermine it?
1: Yeah, I I think it's. Um, I mean, maybe I, I sort of um, answered that already in advance. That um, kind of neither the the vision of uh, of inhuman capital, um, and again, you know, with the proviso that that's probably the wrong way to term it because it's not capital anymore. But in any in any case, like this fully autonomous dehumanized dehuman not dehumanized but inhuman um, system um, based on the production of co- commodities, um, but without exploitation of human labor, um, is the bad post capitalism, and again. Just to repeat myself. The neo-feudal thesis is nothing other than, you know, at least that its at least the the kind of strong argument for it. The weak argument for neo-feudalism is really just slapping on a sexy label onto um capitalist stagnation. The people who make the more thoroughgoing arguments around it around something moving to some sort of po- bad post-capitalism, um, then okay, but I I don't I find it less. Um, a less strong, a less believable case than this argument for an inhuman uh, capitalism, although it might be take two, three hundred years to actually emerge.
2: Phil, any any final thoughts? No,
0: I, I mean I tend to agree with Alex on that one.
2: So just a uh, don't sound surprised. Point, yeah, I mean we don't want too much. It is kind of surprising.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean every, you know every what a stop a stopped clock uh it tells at the right time twice uh twice a day so you know alex is going to get going to knock one out of the park every once in a while you must um must assume sorry that sounded Thank really, you very kind really, yeah you will nudge.
0: Really nudge, nudge it out of the park occasionally that's right
2: um but no just uh one final thing that i think is is worth saying about this book is that it does have a very good table on uh, page 51 and, and listeners will know how Fond of a table, um, I am. I think anybody who writes a book, you should have at least one table because it's a good way to summarize things. Some of us um, think in 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 that way, um, it's but no, lines. I, hmm. yeah. I mean categories. None of this backwards, forwards, dialectical uh, nonsense. But <laughs> um, yeah, so Alex, do you want to uh, tee us up for the final reading club of the year? Yes, in, uh, so, in December.
1: So this has been a lot of of capital of autonomously moving. Parts and things and abstractions, and we're going to be talking about uh, humans and humans laboring or maybe not laboring as it happens in the final one of, uh, of the techno feudalism section of the 2022 Reading Club. Um, we're going to be discussing works by Hui Braga, a Brazilian theorist on uh, precarity, as well as on uh, as well as by Guy Standing, who uh kind of tread similar ground. Um so that will be um we're going to confirm the date to that because it'll be running into the sort of end of year uh Christmas period. So we're going to confirm when exactly that'll be recorded but again do send us in questions and also answer uh, answer <laughs> send us answers not just questions god damn it um help us out here. Um but yeah no do do comment on this episode. Um, what you thought of it. Um, Some of you might work in AI or kind of related fields and might have more insight into um, the more technical side of things that we might have glossed over. So please do uh, let us know or if you've disagreed with our interpretation, um, let us know, um, but no bots, please. Okay, catch you next time. Bye-bye.